free will or slavery and bondage. You can't just talk about free will like it's in a vacuum and it doesn't exist in comparison to slavery. Hello and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truths of your Word. Some of them are difficult for us fallen by into sin. They're easy to argue about. Discussions turned into can easily turn into something ugly. But we know, Lord, that in finding truth, in working to find it, in digging for it like one would dig for gold, there is great benefit. Benefit to the Christian experience, benefit to our relationship with the living God. Lord, you are the source of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Lord, to walk in the truth is to walk with you. To walk in a lie or deception is to be separated from you to one degree or another. All the world is separated until individuals come to saving knowledge of Christ. Lord, we ask that we would walk in nearness to you, that we would seek for what the Apostle Paul sought after, that he might know you and the fellowship of your sufferings, being conformed to your image. I ask your Heavenly Father that might be our thought and our desire even as we listen to an argument that's been going on for, well, over you know, 1,700 years. I ask your Lord that you would give us peace in this, Give us the truth and allow us to see the scriptures as they're written. Not what we want them to say, but what they say. I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, message, the lesson for today is found in assorted scriptures. It's episode 63 that I have entitled, Free Will or in its bondage. Have you ever experienced in your life the loss of something that drives you out of your mind searching for it? I mean, I I wish uh, that I could say I hadn't. But, you know, say a pair of sunglasses. You know they're in the house but you just can't find them no matter where you look. It gets so annoying after a while. Then someone comes in the house and they see how exasperated you are and they ask, you know, why? And you, you tell them, I can't find my sunglasses. This is crazy. Then they give you this most annoying look of astonishment with this slightest little grin, you know, And you're trying not to get angry, and you look at them and you ask, what's so funny? 
And they say, well, they're sitting on your head. You know, if you, have you ever had an experience like that? I'm sure most of my listeners have. Well, one of the three, one of the longest running arguments in the Christian church was begun between a man by the name of Pelagius, a British monk and theologian. His theological system is known as Pelagianism, which emphasized human choice in salvation. He believed that all men were born without original sin, which meant all men have no propensity to sin. Therefore, men, in his view, are not sinners, or were, until they commit their first sin. Now, that's anything but biblical, and if you want to follow that thinking, you will have to white out or tear out Romans chapter 5 of the Bible because it, it just doesn't fit. On the opposite side of Pelagius was the man known as St. Augustine. He prayed a prayer that so infuriated Pelagius that it turned into a 1,700-year war, not between the two men, but you know, men throughout history uh, arguing over this. Now, the prayer itself by Augustine was, quote, give what you command and command what you will. The meaning is simple. Whatever it is that God asks of us, he must supply. Get that? Whatever God asks, he must supply. Therefore, God, give what you command and command what you will. It's true unless, uh, of course, God is not the source of all things. The old story is the proud man says, I don't need God to build a house. And then, of course, God says to him, well, okay, but you have to create your own wood. So that's the problem. The problem is everything comes from God. God is the source of all things. Let us consider really quick, though, the reasons why uh, people want to believe in free will. I will propose that, uh, and I will prove the answers to the arguments that I lay out here throughout the course of this lesson by the scriptures that I use. But I would propose the first argument would be if men do not have free will, God will choose uh, to send people to hell. And the answer to that, the problem with that argument is this. God chooses to send every person that will not receive Christ as Lord. I'm going to go into greater depth than that uh, uh, coming up, but he chooses to send every person who does not... Now, both sides must agree with this one, unless you're a universalist and you believe all people are going to heaven, which is the furthest thing from biblical reality. Do you see it? Do you see what I'm saying here? God chooses those people, but that's okay in the minds of some, the people who won't receive Christ. You see, somehow in the mind of those, and I've been one of those, uh, mentally, intellectually, not in my heart, but uh, from the point that I became a Christian. You see, somehow though, in, in a person's mind, once they've believed, if we believe and are deceived into believing in this argument of 
quote-unquote free will, that somehow it does away with God's choice to send people to hell. Nevertheless, he does choose to send all those who refuse. But what is thought in the minds of people is that he's not making the choice. People are making that choice. They send themselves to hell. When we think that way, we're not thinking the whole thing through. We're not seeing the whole picture. Such thinking negates the overarching reality that God always, always, always has the last say in all things. Or else he's not God. I mean, think about it. If a man has the last say on where he spends his eternal destiny, then God didn't make the choice. (laughs) Then how can we call him God? The sinful choices that God make infuriates our holy God, who, according to Hebrews, is a consuming fire. The end result is God sends people to hell. I mean, Jesus did say, do not fear those who can destroy the body, but fear him who will destroy both body and soul in hell. Second, reason people want to believe that they have free will is they say they're otherwise they're only machines. Now the problem with this argument is men that are held as slaves are not able to make their own choices but are under bondage by their owner. They are property, not free men. Unfortunately, or but truthfully, the Arminian is has to face the fact that the entire human race has fallen into slavery because of sin. And I will prove that in the future. And number three, a loving God would not send anyone to hell. The problem with this argument is God's justice demands that all sinners be sent to hell. It is only God's sovereign and arbitrary will that rescues any sinner by his grace and mercy. So let us look at some I wills or let us look at God's arbitrary and gracious I wills. This is going to begin um, with Exodus uh, chapter 3. And in there we read this. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, And I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, this is what you shall say to the sons of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now this is the basic form of the word Jehovah. Um, And it's... it's (laughs) It's the name of the eternal God. He's always been. He's, he didn't come into being in, in this way, in a number of other ways. He's absolutely separate from his creation. He has always been. Can't wrap your mind around it. Can't understand it. Can't comp- we can understand it, but we can't comprehend it. The big difference between understanding, okay, God always was, and another thing, you can't experience it. And if you can't experience it, you, you can't fully comprehend it. So his name is I am that I am. And he said, 
This is what you shall say to the sons of Israel. I am has sent me to you. In verse 15, it says, God furthermore said to Moses, This is what you shall say to the sons of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is God's personal name. We all have names, firemen, thief, brother, friend, uh, and those names are descriptive of what we do, but we all have a personal name. This is God's personal name, and this is the name for all generations, he says, to use to call upon me. Go and gather the elders of Israel, gather them and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Verse 17, So I said, I will bring you up out of the oppression of Egypt. Get that? God said, I will bring you up out of the oppression of Egypt. This is not man saying, I will bring myself up. This is not man saying, I will leave sinfulness. This is God saying to the Israelites, I will bring you up out of the oppression or the slavery of Egypt, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Hivite, and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will pay attention to what you say, and you with the elders will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will reach out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. Now, this is the plan. This isn't God just looking into the future of what's going to take place as if it's not in his control. Everything from the tiniest microbe to the greatest star in the universe is all in God's control. So in verse 21, he says, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house for the articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And you will put them on your sons and daughters, so you will plunder the Egyptians. This is God's will. This is not what the Egyptians wanted to do. This is not what the Egyptians would will to do. This is a broken people under the hand of God. And God, turning the hearts of the Egyptians to willingly do what they chose, in a sense, willingly, under God's breaking hand. Get the idea? Understand what's going on here. Chapter 3, all the I wills that come from Moses' mouth are nothing but excuses as to why he does not feel up to the calling he was receiving from God. And then we're talking about Moses. Moses is like, you know, he's just all he was about was making excuses. 
Moses' first 40 years in the line of Pharaoh, as he was in that line, taught him to think of himself as something. Moses' second 40 years in the desert taught him to think of himself as nothing. And Moses' last 40 years taught him to think of God as everything. Now, make no mistake, God was sovereign over all of this. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3 say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is the giving of the law. Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Who is the Lord? Who is the one who brought the Jewish people, the Hebrews, out of the land of Egypt? You got it. It's God. In the Garden of Eden, Adam bit into the forbidden fruit by believing the devil's words, and so the whole race believed him also as proved by our hatred for the one true God and devising false religions. I mean, think of it. People would really rather go out, tear down a tree, carve it into an image uh, of whatever, and worship that and call that God. And men did that for a very long time until it got substituted for philosophies and for intelligence and for... But it all comes down to the same thing. Religion after religion is just man's desire and working at believing what he wants, despite even when the Bible is read and taught to people. The devil, also known as Lucifer from Isaiah 14, or the son of the morning, Lucifer, which is what that means in Hebrew, fell through pride. And so does all mankind. Isaiah 14, 12 through 17 says this, quote, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And then this is said about him. Nevertheless, you will thrust down, be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home. Some will say this is just a king. And that's end quote. Some will just say that this is, this is just the king. But, you know, there's no king ever in the world, history of the world, nor will there ever be a man who made the earth tremble. Now that could be, you know, in a, in a manner of speaking to tremble, and it's not really trembling. But, you know, which king shook the kingdoms? Who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities? I mean, a day is coming of tribulation and there will be an antichrist. But make no mistake, there's a demon, a de the devil behind all of this. He will be indwelt by the devil himself. And that person is the one spoken of with all these I wills. It comes from the devil, make no mistake about it. 
we're not at the center of the universe. We're, we're not even in the center of the problems that we face. The devil is. We're just used. We're either used as a channel by God or a channel by the devil. Now, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 7, make an astounding argument in regard to this subject. It says, quote, by the Apostle Paul, and this is coming out of the identification that he shows that there is in Romans chapter 5, that men are either identified in the, in the race of Adam or they're re-identified in the race of Christ, once having been born again, been given a new heart, and rise up to serve the living God through the person of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. That's the gospel. And the, the key print, teaching and doctrine is identification. We see it in every doctrine that there is a justification by faith alone. That's Without identification, it doesn't work. I mean, none of the doctrines work in salvation apart from a being identified with Christ. And so Paul, coming out of chapter 5, going into Romans chapter 6, he's now bringing based on that argument, and I would encourage you to study through Romans chapter 5, uh, and beginning in verse 3 of 6 says, quote, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So baptism is a symbol of what really happens. Christ died on the cross, and when he died on the cross, the sins of all those for whom he died, washed away, Colossians chapter 2. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 4, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. There's this identification. So that as Christ was raised from the dead, 2,000 years ago, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall become, be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now get this, get this picture, get it clear, because it is so important to this subject of freedom, free will, or slavery and bondage. You can't just talk about free will like it's in a vacuum and it doesn't exist in comparison to slavery. So Paul is making this argument in chapter 6, and he's talking about us being united with Christ in his death, which he died 2,000 years ago before we were born in this century. And in that death that he died, there's also being identified in his resurrection, raised from the dead. And what's the purpose of all this, he says? So that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died 
is freed from sin. Now let's think about this for a second. If we have free will, and we're talking about freedom in a moral sense, we're not talking about freedom to tie which shoe you choose to tie first in the morning, your left foot or your right foot, or thousands of other choices that you can make that have no implication as to morality whatsoever. We are talking about slavery to sin, which is most definitely immoral before God, or the freedom to choose what is right and holy and good, which would include even motive. Because make no mistake, God chooses and it judges the hearts of men. And he judges the hearts of men to know whether or not what they are doing is for the right motive. And I'll get into that in a little bit too. So we're talking about a moral choice, and in one regard, a person is either a slave to the choices he makes, including why he makes them, and we call this sin, alienation from God, hatred for God. And on the other hand, we call it freedom, the freedom to make a righteous choice. So he goes on in verses 15 to 19 and says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And by the way, if we needed Christ to go to the cross to set us free, how could we be free? And that's the point. How can a person have free will when he's in bondage to sin and needs first to be set free? May it never be, Paul says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. And he says it right here. Either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So here's the point. You're either a slave in Adam's race or you're set free in Christ's race. He already states this in Romans chapter 5. You're in one race or in the other. You're a slave or you're a free man. If you're in Adam's race, how could you be free to do such, to make a moral good choice? Verse 18, he says, or verse 17, he says, uh, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. You know, coming out of verse 16, he said, either sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. You're either dead in sins and trespasses or you are set free to do what's right before God. And that's the definition of freedom. Free to do what's right. We're never free to do what's wrong. That's just bondage and sin and leads to death. Absolutely, that's the case. So in verse 18, he continues and says, Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Proves what I just said. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Now that's only good for a person who has been set free. 
telling a person to present their members as slaves to righteousness is ridiculous when they're a slave to sin. Slaves to sin are people, complete slaves to sin are people who are uh, lost. Now, can a Christian become, in worst cases, for a short period of time? That can be the case. But nowhere in the New Testament is that the permanent case that some believe that that would be. And that's where the part of the arguments that, that Paul is making in chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. And in 8, he makes it very clear, very clear, um, that point. I don't think I'm going to be looking at those verses, but you will read through chapter 8, and he makes a distinction of people who are in Christ and not in Christ, and who's saved and who's lost. Let, let, let's not let anybody kid it. Let's not kid ourselves. All of Paul's previous arguments have nothing to do with non-moral choices. Like choosing, uh, you know, to, to, to get a take a drink, which leads to addiction. Addiction is not the issue to anything here. This is not that kind of slavery. This slavery is a slavery of the heart and has to do with how we view God or do not view God, do not choose to follow the one true God. He's talking about the inability of all mankind to do even a righteous act. In Isaiah chapter 64, it says this, for, uh, beginning in verse 4, for from, from the days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts on behalf of one who waits on for him. You meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, for we sinned. We continued in our sins for a long time. You shall not be saved, for all of us have become like one who is unclean. And get this, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And that, I don't even want to mention the word in the original language. That filthy garment is really filthy. Think of the most filthy garment you know of. And that's what it's talking about. And all of us wither like a leaf. And our wrongdoings like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name who stirs himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have surrendered us to the power of our wrongdoings. Now that is the will of God according to Isaiah. And the will of God is to turn people over to what they want to do. And all sinners in Adam's race, apart from the grace of God, only know how to do that. So much so that even our righteous deeds are as a filthy garment in God's sight. The choice belongs to God in Christ. John 15 says this. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that a person will lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, 
And remember that doing what I command you includes motive. Verse 15, no longer do I call you slaves. Well, there's Jesus no longer calling the people he's talking about here slaves. He's calling them friends. For the, fl- the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends because all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Now, in that context, a friend or slave, Jesus says this in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Who does the commands of God? The ones that Jesus chooses. Not the ones who choose Jesus. Now we choose Jesus once we're set free to do so. But until such time that we are set free to do so, we won't. We would never. That's why hell is eternal. People never choose on their own. I mean, you would think after a billion years in suffering, a billion years in suffering, that a person would choose, okay, I've had enough. I can't stand this anymore. I can't take this darkness. I can't take being alone. I can't take suffering in this flame. I can't take this lake of fire and choose Jesus. But that's not what the Bible says. They will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. That's what it says. There's no way around it. There's no, I mean, people can work their way around anything. They can reason anything. They can reason themselves to be a bagel. You know, that's, that doesn't prove anything. There isn't a reasoning and a philosophy, according to James, that comes right from hell. And this isn't just about reasoning. This is about what the Bible says. So what the Bible says is this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Now, you know, even as a saved Christian who's in the process of being sanctified, changed, transformed by the power of God, when the Apostle Paul writes something like this, when God inspires a man like Paul to write something like this, And he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. What we should always understand is this is only going to be done through the power of God. I mean, let's face it. If it weren't for the power of God, could any person live their life like this? A fallen race. The angels in heaven that have not fallen. I'm stepping a little bit out of my, my boundaries here for what I... I should say, but I know it's true in my heart, is that the the holy angels are made holy by God. It's ridiculous to think anything other than that. There is no such thing as perfectly complete autonomy when it comes to a, a creature before our holy God. He is the source of all things. So the Apostle Paul says to us, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. You know in your heart. 
how almost impossible that is. Or is it impossible? Apart from the power of God, it is. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I mean, only the person who's maturing by the power of God gets to anywhere near this kind of a life, this kind of a mentality. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and being born in the likeness of men. This is an incredible sacrifice. Totally incomprehensible to us. We have no idea whatsoever what that would be, what that would look like in experience. But emptied himself. He emptied himself. And listen, in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. For this reason, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. Now remember, we're being told to be like him. So that in the, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, you know what? And even if I were to die right now, I would be the soul, I would, I would go into the presence, Hebrews chapter 11, 12 teaches me, into the presence of the souls of righteous men made perfect. You know what perfect is? That's, that's like this. It's, it's not comprehensively God, but it's in this image. So that God has no problem with any person in heaven right now to how they act. They do not fail the test that they act like this. That, that might, that's hard for us to even comprehend, right, right now? Verse 12, he continues, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, think about the entrance into the doorway into becoming a Christian. The choice, we say, people make to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. So that everything he says, we're going to do. We're going to honor everything that God says. Men have a free will to do this from like, it's like always been. It's never changed so that men freely choose Jesus or freely re reject Jesus. Are you getting the context of all of this, what I'm saying? Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And he tells us, okay, so you got all of this, what you got to do, and how you got to be completely selfless. And he then goes on and he says this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Why fear and trembling? Like knees knocking kind of a thing. Why? And he gives us the reason in verse 13. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Here it is. Listen to it. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What's he saying? He's saying, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and it's God who's doing this work within you. God's present. God's present to bring this to pass. The word will is thalo, 
in uh, Greek by definition, to will. And listen, to be resolved or determined to purpose absolutely. Some want to put wish in there, a desire, and it's a, a two-pronged word. But the fact is, even if it's a wish or it's desire, the determination is there. The purposing is there. It's actually an edgio. It absolutely comes in that basic term. Working in a situation which brings it from one stage or point to the next. Like an electric current energizing a wire, bringing it to the light bulb. It's going from... See, the whole, the, whole, the whole electric system in this wire that it's kind of pictured in this word, this kind of working through from one point to another, is this from beginning to end, it's God. For it's God who works in you to will. From when? From the beginning point to the end. He's the Alpha and the, and the, the, alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And that's true in salvation too. So, you know, like I choose Jesus and, you know, now that choice, you know, is going to carry on. No, you didn't choose Jesus. Jesus said he chose you. From the beginning to the end, it's God working by grace from the very first choice. Because before the very first choice, you had to be born again. It's a regeneration or it's nothing. Because he has to give you the, 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 the new heart. That's the covenant of, chapter, of Hebrews chapter 10. The covenant is that God would write his law on our minds, he would place them on our heart, and this is his part of the covenant, which is really everything from beginning to end. And to think that you're making a choice apart from the holy, righteous source of everything is, well, it's not biblical, and I'm being kind to say that. The principle is this, if God is not the originator of a thing, he can, take no, he can take no pleasure in it. If God is not the originator of a thing, he can take no pleasure in it. Only God creates good. Fallen creatures can only bring forth evil. They sin. That's what we do. That's what we create in the universe. That's the only thing we create. We don't create dirt. We don't create light. We don't create energy. We don't create space. We don't create anything. God creates all those things. The conclusion of the whole matter is found here. Romans chapters 9 through 11. I'm not going to go through them, of course. I'll just touch on a few verses, and then we'll conclude. It is in this section that Paul proves, beyond all shadow of doubt, that God is sovereign in all things, including salvation. By his choice of the Jew as a chosen people, and by their restoration at the end of the age, and this is chapters 9 through 11 in Romans, he's proving that this is all God's choice. And I'm just going to sum it up here in chapter 9, verses 6 to 16. These 10 verses sum it all up. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Why? But through Isaac, your descendant will be named. Not Ishmael. So what he's saying here, this isn't a genetic thing. And then he's going to go on and explain this. And I love it. You have to love this. 
It's through the promise. It's through Isaac that the descendants of Abraham are named. Verse 8, that is, it is not the children of the flesh or the children of God who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived, and these, you know, these, these conceptions, this is like miracles, conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had done not anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. People jump right in here. Oh, you know, faith isn't a work. A choice isn't a work, really. You know, the only moral thing you can do comes from choice. It has to start with a choice. People want to separate a choice from doing something. You can't do it. You have to desire to do it. You have to choose to do it, and then you do it. Because it becomes a work doesn't mean that it didn't begin in the head and in the heart. I mean, James talks about sin that way. It's the same with righteousness. You can't have it one way and not the other. It starts as a desire, and when it's complete and fulfilled, you have the work, but it began as a choice. So, he says about the twins, one not hadn't done anything good or bad, either one of them. Why? So that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. There's no other way of reading this. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Verse 12. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. But just as it is written, and here's the clinker, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now look, I don't want to make it sound like God hates sin errs in such a way that he would take pleasure in sending them to hell. Because that's not what the scripture says. The scripture scripture says just the opposite. That God does not take pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. But not taking pleasure is not the same as not willing to do it. God is a righteous and holy consuming fire when it comes to sin in his universe. Now look, I'm just a person like you are. You know, we're made from dirt. We have the the breath of life breathed into us. We have life. And those of us who have received Christ as Lord have eternal life flowing in us. But that doesn't make us God and doesn't mean that we can comprehend this kind of a truth as if we, or understand this kind of a truth as though we can comprehend it. And it's bothersome. It's, It's hard. I don't want to make this sound like it's easy. This is ridiculously hard. The idea of thinking that a a loved one or any person would go to hell. A person can't do that without feeling deeply grieved by it. I can't imagine how God feels. I'm just talking about us right now. Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? And he says, may it never be. For he says to Moses, this is what God said to Moses. 
I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. I mean, what, do you, what, what can you do with that? You're gonna, we're gonna, I would suggest we don't twist those words to mean something other than what Paul is saying here. He's talking about the choice belongs to God. He's saying the choice to show mercy and grace and compassion belong to God. It's not us forcing God or even allowing God to show mercy because of my choice. It's God's choice. You can't read 9, 10, and 11 and find man's choice in there anywhere. Just like you can't find man doing anything in Ephesians chapter 1. We're not present. It's just God. Read Colossians chapter 1. Who gets, all the, who gets all the glory? Well, there's no glory in making the choice. Really? Do we really want to even say that? Here's the concluding verse. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? You get the, you get the point there? Well, I mean, what is it that we give God that he gives us back? You see, it doesn't work that way. Uh, Cal, uh, Augustine got it right. You know, when he says, command what you will, will what you command, you know, the, the point is clear. I mean, where's he getting that? I mean, he's getting that from here. He's getting the idea that everything must originate with God, or he takes no pleasure in it, because he's God. I mean, by definition, we have to understand that all things originate with God. He's the I am that I am. Who's he talking to? Was he, he talking to Moses? What's he saying to him? Everything originates from me. The choice to choose Jesus as Lord, where does that come from? Where does the heart to do such a thing, where does it come from? A a heart to praise God throughout all eternity and never be self-willed ever. Where does that come from if it doesn't come from God? Understand what we're saying here. So that's why he, he says, he says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? And then he concludes with this verse 36 that's so beautiful, and it's just about pronouns, you know? For from him and through him and to him are all things. From, from, it, it begins with God. What? What? All. All things come from and through. I mean, even the carrying it out. What are we? We're a channel through which God flows when we're doing it right. That's all we can be. It's okay. We're still here. We're alive. 
And not only are we alive, we're alive with abundant life and experiencing the living God. That's worship. That's obedience. It doesn't have to originate in us. We make ourselves out to be God when we think that way. And in the end, it says, to him are all things. To, to him be the glory. He gets the glory when it's from and of and through. And to. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for a good word. It's a good word because you get the glory. It's a good word because you get exalted to the place where you belong. You deserve the place of honor that belongs only to the one true trinity of God. The the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in one God. We can't comprehend the Trinity. We can't comprehend how you've always been. We can't comprehend how you have all power. Like, there's no extent, like everything else, to your power. There's no extent to your presence. Where can we go? It's not, we talk about the earth. The earth is, is it's nothing compared to everywhere. It's infinitely small. Everything is infinitely small. So how can we comprehend the infinite? And you're infinitely good. All the characteristics that you bestow and want to bestow upon your creatures find their source in you. I give you praise and honor and glory for this, Lord, because you are the one who deserves it. There's no other one that deserves this. There's no other God. I praise you, Lord, because you have actually set us free. And in that freedom, we can actually do what's right. And for all eternity, we will choose by the complete power of God when it's completed in us who are still here, earth-bound, to only choose to do what's right, only choose to glorify you, and only choose to know and think and believe what's true. I pray that, Lord, if there's any people who are listening to this who are torn over the idea of free will, quote-unquote, this position of free will. I pray, Lord, that you would open the hearts of any here who's struggling over this to know that there is no such thing as free will, ultimate free will, that there's no such thing. It's, a, it's an aberration. It, it's a fantasy. It's a delusion. There's only one being that exists everywhere who is completely free who has not only the moral choice, whatever he chooses, you, Lord, but also has the power to carry it out. We don't have any power to keep our heart beating. We haven't set the sun in its place. We aren't keeping the earth revolving around the sun or spinning or the moon revolving around the earth. I mean, all of these things that are so beyond us, so beyond our power. We are obnoxiously proud when we think that we are free ultimately like God. I mean, that is, it's a form, it's an idolatry that's very ugly. And Lord, I don't mean to point the finger at anyone. I, I know that I've, in my mind, lived in the same place in the past. Um, and so I would I desire, Lord, for the freedom that comes 
from believing that only God is ultimately free and is ultimately good and that only God um, can bestow that kind of freedom on us. So it comes from you. So we recognize the truth that we're set free. And in that freedom, we lose the weight on our shoulders that we carry when it's all on us because it's our choice. It's not on us. It sets us free. I don't have to depend on myself to do anything. I can just depend on you to do everything good through me. And you're a God who keeps his promises. You're a God who's in covenant relationship with your people and you will always do what's good through us. Throughout all the eons of eternity, it's all about you, Lord. It's all about your sovereignty. It's all about your choices. It's all about your will, not ours. Help the hearers to go through these scriptures and understand them in the light in which they were written to exalt God and not ourselves. I ask these things for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.